Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his article, What is Philosophy as a Way of Life?, John Sellers considers the possible ways of understanding that movement, a very important contemporary movement in philosophy, and one that goes back into philosophy's very beginnings in the West, and the two main, we could call them dominant ways of understanding and doing philosophy in the West, certainly in the Anglo-American sphere of English-speaking countries, analytic philosophy and continental philosophy. And there's a, a number of different ways in which we can frame this. So one of the ways is that philosophy as a way of life is doing something that doesn't neatly fit into either of these. It's not on either side of the divide. It's a third way, it's an alternative. A different way of framing it would be that there's more connections between philosophy as a way of life with continental philosophy than there is with analytic philosophy. So before we go on too much further, we should say a little bit about analytic and continental philosophy. These are kind of fuzzy categories. They are largely associated with linguistic and cultural spheres. It's not to say that everything in America and Britain is analytic philosophy, clearly not the case because there's continental philosophy there as well. And there was you know, classical American philosophy and there's a lot of history of philosophy that gets ignored by Anglo-American analytic philosophy. But that has become sort of the predominant way of doing philosophy from the, let's say, the 50s onward in America, Great Britain, Australia, Canada, all, all sorts of other places as well. And it's had some influence on you know, European philosophy. There are some people who are very interested in analytic philosophy, particularly in Scandinavia and Germany and, and, and other places as well. And then we have continental philosophy. This is a really fuzzy category. And what we typically call continental philosophy or teach as continental philosophy in, say, America is just a window on the, the much you know, vaster swath of European philosophy. Prime example of this, the person I wrote my dissertation on, Maurice Blondel, not very much taught about in continental philosophy circles. As a matter of fact, many continentalists are very surprised to find out that he already did things that, say, Bergson is credited with or Derrida is credited with or people like that. And that's in part because they don't know the literature, in part because there's this narrow window. So continental philosophy is often posed as sort of like, well, whatever analytic philosophy isn't and all that weird stuff coming from France, Germany, maybe Italy and Spain and places like that. So that is a thumbnail sketch and, and don't rely on that as like the definitive word about these. But I think that's, that's useful enough for this. So, you know, one way of understanding philosophy as a way of life is that it would be connected with and perhaps even encompass some continental philosophy. And Sellers brings up some really interesting contrasts here. He says that between continental existentialism and Oxford linguistic philosophy in the 50s or 60s or engaged Marxism and Quinean naturalism a little bit later on, he says if we, if we look at those, it seems not unreasonable that continental continental philosophers are the heirs of Socrates, that is the humanistic way of doing philosophy, while analytic philosophies are heirs to, to Aristotle, more, you know, scientific knowledge for its own sake, kind of orientation 
towards philosophy. And I, I think that it does make sense to talk about the existentialists fitting in there or engaged Marxists fitting in there as well. And, and that word engaged is very important because it's quite possible to be kind of an ivory tower, or as we used to joke about them, Neiman Marxists, named after, of course, the, the very famous department store Neiman Marcus, right? These people that don't have any real practice. But even if we're thinking about that, it's not as if what was going on on the continent or particularly in France was all philosophy as a way of life, as opposed to the British who were just, you know, chopping logic and looking at language and, you know, disengaged from philosophy and society. Because, you know, another major thing that was going on at the time that existentialism and, and Marxism were really like big parts of the philosophical scene was structuralism. And structuralism is not philosophy as a way of life, very clearly not. I mean, some post-structuralist authors like Roland Barthes, maybe, yes, if you think that reading and literature is a way of doing philosophy as a way of life. But most of the hardcore structuralists, very few of whom are read at, at this present time are well-known, definitely not not that. And Foucault talks about what it was like when he was coming up, where existentialism, Marxism, and structuralism were like the big things that were going on. You know, we could also say is hermeneutics, which was big in Germany, a philosophy as a way of life. It's, it's a little bit dubious. Now, Sellers does bring up Nietzsche. Nietzsche is clearly somebody who belongs within this movement, in part because he, he's, he insists so much that biography and motivations coming out of that are essential to philosophy. And he's carrying out this critique of philosophers on that, that basis. And you know, he brings up Foucault as well, who was connected with and a contemporary of Pierre Adot. Foucault, you know, his notion of technologies of the self would, would fit in there as well. And Ado himself, as Sellers brings up, Pierre Ado talks about philosophy as a way of life, including people like Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Bergson, Merleau-Ponty. But he also tells us for Ado writing in Paris, none of these were continental philosophers. They're just philosophers and they're all people who are recuperating what is going on. Bergson is, is one of the people, along with Maurice Blondel, credited with revitalizing metaphysics within France in the early part of the 20th century. We could count a whole bunch of other figures in there. So there's, you know, you could say some continental philosophy connects up with, overlaps with philosophy as a way of life. You can't really say continental philosophy per se does, however. And this is where we get to the suggestion of perhaps there's a, a third way between analytic and continental philosophy. So he says that we have to put aside the model of what both classifications mean. Uh, Sellers says it's difficult to make generalizations given that the label continental philosophy does not really refer to anything at all beyond those bits of recent Western philosophy, analytic philosophers tend to reject as not how they think philosophy ought to be done. Even so, there's many philosophers in the continental tradition who seem to be engaged in something like philosophy as a way of life. But some people have rejected any connection between the two. And he talks about this guy, Michael Chase, translator of Pierre Adot, who, you know, when you're a translator, you're doing some pretty thankless work. It's not for the money. It's not for the glory, usually. It's because you think that work deserves to be translated. And there's a whole interesting narrative here about how this Chase person studied first with analytics and found that the stuff that he was interested in learning from philosophy, they were totally 
really uninterested in, said that's not really philosophy. And then he's like, well, I guess I'll go study with the Continentals. Maybe it'll be better over there. And the department that he picked over there, it, it really wasn't any better. It's just a, sort of like the old proverb, meet the new boss, right? Say goodbye to the old boss. It's still somebody gatekeeping, channeling what's going to count as philosophy. And, you know, there's definitely something to this. So here's a great line by Sellers. Like many philosophy students before and since who found themselves uninspired by possible worlds or out of control trolleys, Chase decided to move on to, to the only other game in town. And so here's what Chase writes. I had a taste of both analytic and continental philosophy. The two mutually exclusive branches of the discipline, neither had satisfied me, neither seemed to be able to speak to my thirst for the honest, jargon-free discussions of philosophical issues that genuinely matter to my life. So he wanted a third way. He found that in Pierre Adot. And interestingly, he found his way to Pierre Adot the way that many of us do when it comes to getting away from analytic and continental stuff, studying Greek and Latin and going back to ancient authors and finding out that the caricatures of them in analytic philosophy or continental philosophy are fake and that the real deal is much more robust and interesting and speaks to our contemporary concerns, even though, were separated from them by two millennia and sometimes more in some cases. And so he says, Pierre Adot's conception of philosophy as a way of life, which doesn't fit neatly into the usual two-pronged division of philosophy into analytic continental, may provide indications of a third way as an alternative to both. So this third way idea is worth considering. And Sellers says, why would it provide a third way? It doesn't shun the traditional big philosophical questions. It deals with issues relevant to people's lives. It does not model itself on the natural sciences, analytic philosophy, and it avoids being ironic or relativistic, continental philosophy. It's a way of thinking about philosophy today that's accessible to non-experts. That's a problem for both analytic and continental philosophy and connects with the wider history of philosophy stretching back to antiquity also a problem for both of them. Although continental philosophy, there's more emphasis on reading texts. The average person doing continental philosophy really doesn't know much about the Stoics or Aristotle or Boethius or even people they, they heavily criticize like Descartes. They know sort of a window into it that they got from reading Heidegger, Deleuze or whoever, right? And so that's, you know, the, these are significant motives for wanting a third way. So, you know, Sellers says that I'm going to put whether these images are entirely fair to the side. I don't doubt for a moment both accounts accurately present his own experiences as a student. I've had similar experiences myself. No doubt both traditions are richer than the instances Chase encountered at university. But the important point is that Chase is proposing three distinct traditions of philosophy rather than two. And so rather than a contrast between scientific and humanistic metaphilosophy, Chase's distinction is between two kinds of equally arid and irrelevant academic discourse, analytic and continental, versus a venerable ancient tradition of life-changing wisdom, philosophy as a way of life. Now, Sellers later on will say, yeah, I'm not really buying this third way. It's more that philosophy as a way of life cuts across the analytic continental divide. And that's perhaps a better way, a more accurate way of thinking 
thinking about it. Granted that in many local places, what passes for analytic or continental philosophy may indeed be what he's described here, equally arid and irrelevant academic discourse, right? So the other thing that, that Sellers doesn't talk about here, but I think is worth bringing up in relation to this section is that we could think of philosophy as a way of life as perhaps intersecting with other things that have been proposed as third ways of doing philosophy besides analytic and continental. Classical American comes to mind. One of the, the problems with the dominance of analytic philosophy in America is that from about the 1950s onward, the classical American philosophical tradition, which does include American pragmatists like Dewey, James, Peirce, Royce arguably, but also goes way back to the American transcendentalists, includes other people along the way, includes Jonathan Edwards, includes the American Renaissance writers. All of that just got totally pushed to the side. And all of that has a lot of similarities to philosophy as a way of life. We could also think about the history of philosophy. Now, history of philosophy can be done in a equally arid and boring way as it is done by some people, but it also very often is done by philosophers who want to study Aristotle, not just to trace out his influences, not just to determine exactly what's being said in this text, but because they think Aristotle has something to say to us or the Stoics have something to say to us in the present. And we might think of other things, McIntyrean tradition constituted rationalities as being very similar to this project. We could go on and on and on. So there's probably other third ways to analytic and continental philosophy that bear similarities to philosophy as a way of life. So, you know, Sellers is not all that convinced about this third way business. I think that he's probably right in, in talking about this cutting across the divides in part because we can find people doing things like philosophy as a way of life, not only in the continental traditions, but also in at least early analytic philosophy and perhaps even in some contemporary analytic philosophy as well. So that's a way to understand the relation between philosophy as a way of life and these two predominant other discourses or traditions within the world of academic philosophy. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, Keep studying these great philosophical works.